God expects and enables his people to be faithful and fruitful in their ministries. God requires us to handle his gospel treasure with diligence and accuracy. Welcome to the Manna Bible Lessons Podcast. Manna is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. If you would open your Bibles, fellow students, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, We began our study in Thessalonians last week. Lord willing, we'll be here for a few more months. We're going to be taking a look at chapter 2. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, remember, visited the city of Thessalonica on Paul's second missionary journey. Paul did three missionary journeys. This second one took place probably between 50 and 52 AD, about a two-year period. Uh, They had come uh, from Antioch, which is Syria, modern-day Syria, named after Antiochus, the Syrian king and gone north into Galatia, which is modern-day Turkey. Then they traveled uh, west uh, across Asia uh, and went into Europe. So this was the uh, Philippi, was the very first church that was planted in Europe. Remember that Paul got a a vision from the Lord, a man in uh, Philippi saying, come over to Macedonia, northern Greece, and help us. So they came over to Philippi, and remember when they were ministering in Philippi, uh, Paul and Silas and, uh, were beaten and jailed and had to leave town. And after leaving Philippi, they traveled about 100 miles or so south to the city of Thessalonica. Now, they were in, there's some argumentation or some commentary about how long they were actually in Thessalonica since it only mentions three Sundays, three Sabbaths that they were in, in the synagogue. But obviously, he was there longer than that because he received a couple of offerings from this church at Philippi, so we think maybe a few months, so a short period of time of ministry in um, the city of Thessalonica, and then they were forced to out of town. The religious Jews got a hostile mob together and ran them out of town. They went from there down to Berea, and the Jews from uh, Thessalonica followed them down to Berea, instigated another riot, and forced them out of Berea, so Paul went uh, down to Athens, uh, which is way south, and then from there to Corinth. Now, he's writing this letter months after his visit to Thessalonica. It could be as much as a year. We're not exactly sure. So he's in Corinth, and he's concerned about this church. It's a young church. It's less than a year old. They're under a lot of persecution. There's a lot of accusations been going on. So he writes them a letter, 1st and 2nd. They had my first write two of them, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. And he writes them to do at least three things. Number one, There are people on site in Thessalonica that are accusing Paul of preaching for wrong motives. Number one, you're greedy, you're preaching for money, uh, and so he's going to answer those accusations. He wants to show them what a healthy church looks like, so he's going to describe what a healthy, growing church behaves like, and he wants to encourage them and remind them about the return of Christ. 1 Thessalonians is utterly interesting. There's five chapters, and every single chapter ends with a review of the coming of Christ. So if you want to get a good idea about eschatology, which is study of end times and the return of Christ, every single chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with commentary about the return of Christ. So let's pick up the narrative in verse 1. 
For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Here's our principle. First principle. God expects and enables his people to be faithful and fruitful in their ministries. God expects and enables his people to be faithful and fruitful in their ministry. So he begins with this interesting commentary. He says, you yourselves know. So he's writing to the Thessalonians. He says, I want you to remember the facts of my visit. Our team came to visit you several months ago, and you were eyewitnesses to what I'm going to talk about. We had a shared experience together for several months. And I know I'm being accused of some things, but I want you to recall what I was like and how we behaved toward you when we came there. So Paul's now going to recount his actions and review his motives with them, and he calls them brethren, literally brothers and sisters. So Paul views the Thessalonians, the Thessalonians as family members. As brothers and sisters, he views the God, the family of God, as equal in the sight of God, bound together by the Holy Spirit. You know, if anybody had a right to be proud, Paul could say, I've been anointed by the Holy Spirit. I saw Jesus directly. Therefore, you will do what I say because I am the grand poobah of bringing the gospel to the Gentiles. That's not how he behaves. He's very humble. He views his family members as equal before the Lord. God is their father bound together by the Holy Spirit. And his summary statement for them, he said, our coming to you was not in vain. When we visited, it wasn't a waste of time. It wasn't futile. It wasn't a failure. It wasn't ineffective, right? God's purpose, by the way, for the gospel is to be effective. God's purpose for the gospel is to change lives by saving them for all eternity, number one, and number two, changing lives here on earth. And Paul says that's exactly what happened because the changed lives of this Thessalonian church, even six, eight, nine months later, were proof positive that Paul's work there had lasting spiritual results. God expects no less from us. God has called us, like he called the Thessalonians, to be disciples, followers of Jesus, and he expects us to minister, it means to serve, and he expects our ministries to be, number one, faithful, and number two, fruitful. Verse 2. That purpose of fruitful and faithful ministry is going to require courage. But after we, verse 2, had already suffered and had been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. Here's the principle. Ministry requires courage because some will reject the gospel. But God has given us boldness and power through the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. Ministry requires courage because some reject the gospel. But God has given us boldness and power through the Holy Spirit. By the way, Paul's not vacationing in Venice Beach. He's under fire at Omaha Beach. When he comes to minister, he's under severe attack. He Remember, he says, we were suffered and we were mistreated in Philippi. They came to Philippi, preached the gospel, liberated the slave girl from demon possession. Her ability to tell fortunes under the power of the demon was making her masters a lot of money. When the demon left her and was exercised by Paul, the cash flow to her masters dried up and they got really upset. So they gathered a mob, charged them with insurrection against Rome, had them unjustly arrested, beaten bloody without a trial, thrown in jail without any formal charges. Paul had suffered. 
clearly, for the gospel. This physical abuse. Obviously, a tremendous amount of pain physically. He was put in stocks, he and Silas, etc. He was also mistreated. Now, suffering means physical pain. Mistreatment is more psychological pain. It's more humiliation, and I think you have to catch this. It's much more verbal insults with the goal of humiliating you into silence. There's an interesting phrase in Acts that says, they stripped off their robes before they beat them. Which means they were naked in front of a crowd, being beaten bloody with rods. And that's just not physically painful, that's emotionally humiliating, right? So after they left Philippi, Paul's team traveled to Thessalonica, and despite suffering, they still had, he uses this phrase, boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God. Boldness, he's talking about courage. He's talking about bravery and fortitude. Courage is what sustains us in our mission, despite suffering, despite danger. Paul's boldness was not his own boldness. It came from the Lord. It was supernatural. As a matter of fact, on multiple occasions, Paul asked the church to pray for him that he would speak with boldness. Make a note, Ephesians 6.19. Ephesians 6.19, you can look it up later. Pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, Ephesians 6.19-20. So Paul asked the church to pray that the Lord would give him supernatural boldness to, to proclaim the gospel of God. That is the power of God for salvation to everyone believes. God promises to give us boldness if we ask for it. 2 Timothy 1.7. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and discipline. And Acts 1.8 Acts says, But you shall receive what? Power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, for what purpose? And you shall be my witnesses with power. And they did that in the face of much opposition. This word is agonia. Agonia. You can tell it comes from agony. And it has to do with the struggle of athletic competition and the life and death struggle of military conflict. So this is a very intense word, much opposition, agonizing opposition. Have you ever noticed that Paul encountered severe opposition wherever he went? And you say, well, how come he was always so intensely opposed? He never compromised the truth of the gospel. He never tickled the ears of people who listened. He told the gospel truth straight up, no chase or no compromise. He just told it straight. This is what it is. And Satan always opposes God's plans and God's people who are carrying out God's plans. Acts 17, verses 1 to 8. Just make a note. Acts 17, the first eight verses. You can look at this later. I'll recount it for you. It recounts his experience in Thessalonica when they first came. Acts 17, verse 1. Now when they, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, had traveled from Amphilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who am I proclaiming to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Now, here's Paul's strategy. If the city he was trying to evangelize 
had a Jewish synagogue, he always went to the Jewish synagogue first. They had a deep respect for the Old Testament scriptures, and Paul was doing something that we probably should learn to do today, which is demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah strictly from the Old Testament, right? He reviewed the prophecies and predictions regarding the promised Messiah, and the Old Testament is filled with them, Isaiah 53 among them. And that, those scriptures promised that this Messiah was going to suffer, die, and be resurrected from the grave. And Paul then reviewed the life of Jesus Christ. He said, this Jesus, this historical Jesus was born in Bethlehem, died on Calvary, rose from the dead less than 30 years earlier. This Jesus who lived 30 years ago is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the promised one from the Old Testament. So he's trying to persuade the Jews who believe the Old Testament that according to Old Testament prophecies, Jesus was the Christ and therefore should be accepted as the Savior of the world. And what were the results? Well, some responded to the gospel, some rejected the gospel. This sound normal? Some will, some won't, right? It's interesting that it says that a greater number of Gentile, God-fearing Gentiles, responded to the gospel more so than the Jewish legalists. It's also notable that some leading women in the, women in the city also responded. So clearly the gospel is having an impact on the city of Thessalonica. Such a large impact that opposition sprang up. Acts 17, verse 5. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. Remember, the Jews incited the Romans to murder Jesus out of jealousy. Same thing has occurred here. When the Jews saw that Paul's crowds were bigger than their crowds, I'm not talking about Jewish people, I'm talking about Jewish religious leaders, the priests, etc., they saw it as a threat to Judaism, they tried to silence him. They couldn't argue with the scriptural evidence that Jesus was the Messiah, according to the Old Testament. So they decided a personal attack. They rustled up a gang of ruffians, formed a mob, instigated the riot. And there's an interesting thing here that you need to understand. They attacked Jason's house because they thought that's where Paul was staying. Their goal was to drag Paul, Timothy, and Silas out of the house and lynch them in the street. That was the goal. Bring them out before the people is a code word for kill them. Right? They couldn't find them, so they dragged Jason and some of the other converts down to City Hall, and they made a remarkable accusation. Here's what they accused Paul of. They said, these men who have, quote, upset the world have come here also. Now, what do they mean by upset the world, and how did the gospel upset the world. The gospel changes people. Would you agree? And God uses changed people to change other people. That's the whole mission of evangelism. Unsaved people treasure earthly things, material things. 
Saved people treasure God and the things of God, eternal things. God's people love righteousness. Satan's people hate righteousness. There's always going to be conflict between those who love sin and those who hate sin, between those who follow Jesus and between those who follow Satan, between those who repent and those who rebel. The gospel is never going to make peace with the world, ever. The gospel is always going to upset the world because it convicts them of sin and calls them to repent. And human pride hates humility and repentance. Human pride will reject that because that's the nature of sin. So human pride and human people who love their sin usually try and shut the messenger up by killing them, opposing them, harassing them. They want to stop the message. The good news for us is the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of his church, said in Matthew 16, 18, what? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. See, the gospel is the sworn enemy of sin. And the gospel kills sin through the cross of Christ. When the gospel prevails, what happens? The sinner's life is turned upside down. How many of you have had your life changed by Jesus Christ? Yeah, here's what happens. The sin that you used to love, you now hate. The Christ you used to hate or at least neglect, you now love. Upside down, right? And the people that are around you that don't know the Jesus you love and don't have a direct experience with him, they do not understand. They think you've lost your marbles. You used to love partying and doing all this other stuff, and now you go to church and those people are excited, and they got to be nuts because they're excited about what? They're excited about this Jesus. Well, they don't know Jesus like you know Jesus. They may know about him, but he doesn't live inside them. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, he changes everything. He turns your world upside down, and when the gospel succeeds in a community, it changes the world. That's the whole point. And they didn't want their world changed. They wanted to live like they wanted to live. So Paul has to live with that kind of opposition, and you and I may well also obviously expect it. So false teachers have come into the church now that Paul's gone, and they've made accusations against Paul, and he's now going to write to defend his ministry. And here's going to be one of the things we're going to talk about, is a fruitful Christian has to be faithful in handling God's word. Let's take a look at verse 3. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but as God who examines our hearts. Here's the principle. God requires us to handle his gospel treasure with diligence and accuracy. God requires us to handle his gospel treasure with diligence and accuracy. So Paul's accusers, they accuse him, number one, your message is false. Number two, your motives are impure. And number three, your, method, your methods are based on trickery. So Paul says, that's not true. My, my message, the gospel message is the truth. It's not based false. It's not based on falsehood. By the way, this word error, it means wandering or roaming. Truth, by the way, never changes. We live in a culture that says you get, to, you get to make your own truth. That's an oxymoron. If it's truth by definition, it never changes. If someone says, that may be your truth, that may be my truth. No, I said, you're not talking about truth. You're talking about opinion. Everybody can have their own opinion, no problem. 
But don't tell me that you can have your truth and I can have my truth because truth is. Truth never changes. You may change around it. You may have an opinion about it, but truth never changes because Jesus Christ is the truth and he never changes. Have you ever noticed that liars always change their story? Their stories wander. They roam. They're vague, right? Truth never changes. It's consistent. It's clear. God's word is the standard of truth by which all other things are judged. Jesus, on the last night on earth, he prayed to his heavenly Father in John 17, 17. He said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. You've got divine truth in your lap, right? That's what everything else is judged by. Number two, Paul says, my motivation to come to you is not impure, it's pure. Now, the word impurity means mixed. It means has foreign material. It means it's adulterated. It means it's contaminated or, or polluted. It's like um, a few years ago, we had a vacant house in our neighborhood, and you could look at Zillow and, and look at the green-black pool in the backyard. You know, I mean, they had not taken care of it in a long time. No one had lived there, right? So in Thessalonica, impurity often re, re, meant referred to sexual sins that were common in that culture. They had a lot of pagan religions, and there was a lot of sexual rituals that the worshipers actually engaged in. So this was not a, this was a port city, as we talked about last week. And when you have a port city with transient populations, you get an enormous amount of sin because there's no accountability. You sin and you get on a ship and leave. It's like Vegas, right? right? You know what I'm talking about. Paul said, you saw how we behaved. You saw that we operated with pure motives. I'm not making this up. You were with us during this period of time. Thirdly, Paul says, we did not use crafty methods or trickery to talk with you about the gospel. Trickery is like fishing with a lure. You are lying to the fish. Yes. You are deceiving the fish. And that, of course, Darren says, well, that's the whole point, right? right? You want to convince them that biting into something that looks like fish, that food, but it's going to lead them to being caught. Satan is the master fisherman. He uses the lure of temptation to catch you. And by the way, Satan does not believe in catch and release. He believes in catch and kill. Right? It's about your soul for all eternity. So the Apostle Paul and, our, and we as God's people should be known for our transparency, not for our trickery. There's no bait and switch in the gospel. It's the truth of God's word and people's response to that. So the gospel message is God's message. We didn't make this up. It belongs to him. And his messengers must be approved by God to bring the message. Paul uses this term, Approved by God. That means certified after testing. You've been tested and you've been certified to be approved. Now, Paul had been called by God years early to preach the gospel. And believe me, the amount of opposition and persecution and physical suffering, he was tested in the trenches for years. God has done the same for us. Do you realize that God treasures the gospel? His son is the essence of the gospel, and he loves his son, and he has entrusted you and I with this eternal treasure called the gospel, which is the way people can be reconciled to God 
and come into a life-changing relationship with God. That is treasure. That is eternal treasure. There is nothing more precious in the world than eternal life and having a relationship with the God who loves you eternally. And he has entrusted you with this treasure. And paradoxically, if you want to protect the treasure of the gospel, the best way to protect it is to pass it on. Give it away. 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 But give it away accurately and diligently, right? God has loaned us this gospel, and he says, I want you to manage this. It belongs to me, but I'm delegating to you this task of sharing my love with people who need it. And by the way, I'm holding you accountable for it because Paul says God examines our hearts. God scrutinizes our heart. God examines our hearts. There's an old management axiom that says, inspect what you expect. You ever done it with your children, grandchildren? Clean your room. I would suggest you check just to make sure there's just not a junk pile into the bed or you open the closet door and you die in the avalanche that falls out, right? I mean, inspect what you expect or you may not like what you get, right? God does inspect what he expects. 1 Corinthians 4, Paul is writing and he says, in this case, moreover, it's required of stewards, managers, that's what you are, you manage the gospel, you steward it, you handle it, that one be found trustworthy. Paul says, but to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any other human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself, for I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Paul says, I don't even trust my own evaluation of my own heart. My conscience doesn't convict me I've done sin, but that doesn't mean I haven't sinned. Because I can lie to myself, we have blind spots, amen? He says, I trust the Lord's evaluation of my heart because he knows me better than I know. God knows our thoughts before we think them and our words before we say them, Psalm 139. By the way, if you want to be motivated to do diligent work, nothing will motivate you then more than divine accountability. Divine accountability says God's going to examine our work on his behalf, 1 Corinthians 3, in the Bamish seat of Christ, which is the judgment seat of Christ for rewards. You and I will be evaluated as to our faithfulness in how we handled his treasure of the gospel. We need to take that extremely seriously. We're commanded in 2 Timothy 3, 6, 15, what? Be diligent to present yourself to prove to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, which indicates evaluation, accurately handling the worth of truth. Accurately handling the word of truth. That's why we study the Bible with such diligence. He said, our motives should not be pleasing man, but pleasing the Lord. Remember, this is probably 50, 60 years ago, maybe 70 years ago, ever heard of someone named Jim Elliott? Jim Elliott was a missionary. He was martyred by the Hurani Indians in 1956 in Ecuador. He and four of the people. And he once said that the only degree he wanted was the AUG degree. He wasn't concerned about a PhD. He wanted an AUG degree, which is approved unto God. He wanted his approved unto God degree, and he based it on 2 Timothy. You cannot please holy God and sinful man at the same time. If you're going to be faithful to the gospel, 
your mission has to be to please the Lord and his treasure, not the people you're talking to. Proverbs 29, 25 warns us, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. If you fear the disapproval of people, what you will do is organize your words and your ways in order to be approved by them. Now that's a problem. Because sinful man, sinful people, are at war with the God that you claim to serve. You cannot serve holy God and sinful man at the same time. You have to make it. What did Jesus say? No one can serve two masters. We need to say with Peter and John, we must obey God rather than men. And we know that Paul wasn't trying to please people. If Paul was trying to please people, why were they trying to kill him? Right? I mean, he obviously was preaching the truth of the gospel even though the people that were listening to it, some of them were in opposition to the point of trying to kill him. Verse 5. Paul says, We never came to you with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though, as apostles of Christ, we might have asserted our authority. This flattering speech, interesting phrase, Paul was not a charmer. By the way, have you ever met someone who's charming? I'm always cautious about someone who's too good to be true, right? A flatterer will tell you something to your face that they would never say behind your back. A gossip will say something behind your back that they would never say to your face, right? Got it? Some of you are kind of just trying to process that, right? Here's what flattery is. Flattery is a verbal bribe to somebody's ego designed to buy favorable treatment from them. I want something from you, so I'm going to tell you a sweet lie that in your heart of hearts you know is baloney, but it makes you feel good because your ego wants to hear it, and I want something from you. Paul wasn't trying to win popularity contests. He was trying to win souls. And he said, we didn't come to you. Our motives weren't greedy, a pretext for greed. It means it's words that sound pious and holy, but I really want money, right? Covetousness. Church leaders are obviously commanded to be free from the love of money. Unfortunately, in our culture, we have many Christian preachers who are really not in the gospel business. They're really in the entertainment business, and they've amassed fortunes. I was Googling Ministry Watch which is an interesting accountability website for you want to know what's going on in the world of ministry, and they listed the pastors with the largest fortunes. And there are some significant fortunes. Probably half of them are Nigeria. And we're talking tens and tens of millions, although we got a, quite a few here in America as well, right? Many who are famous today and rich today in the name of the gospel are going to be infamous and shamed for all eternity. We need to live for eternity, not for today. Paul says, I come to you with transparent motives, not greedy. We weren't seeking glory from you either, by the way. We weren't seeking title, recognition, honor. We weren't seeking the pride. The reality is, none of us should seek the approval of people. In other words, we don't want them to follow us. Who do we want them to follow? Jesus. Who do we want people to remember after you're dead? Not you. Not you. We want them to remember Jesus. When they think about you, we want them to remember Jesus. That's the whole point of our lives, to live that in such a way. Paul says we're apostles of Christ. We did have the authority, but we never used it to get our own way. 
A fruitful Christian also gives themselves away to others. Verse 7. Paul says, We proved to be gentle among you, as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. Having so fond an affection for you, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become very dear to us. Here's the principle. Raising spiritual infants to maturity requires large doses of time and tender loving care. Raising spiritual infants to maturity requires large doses of time and tender loving care. See, the goal is to raise spiritual infants to maturity. That's called spiritual parenting. God uses earthly families as a metaphor for his eternal spiritual family. All children obviously need gentleness and kindness in order to grow, and Jesus is our role model. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty nine, what? Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am what? Gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. We like that rest for your souls. We're not so sure about taking that yoke, right? Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's so true, so true. We're commanded in 2 Timothy 2.4. 2 Timothy 2.4 says, But the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged. Which means you're going to be wronged as a follower of Jesus. That's the nature of the beast, and we are called to be patient. We must be gentle, kind, patient, humble, just like Christ. We're bondservants. Bondservants means we're owned by Jesus. He owns you because he paid your sin debt and redeemed you from the slave market of sin and set you free, and now you belong to Jesus. You bear his name. Since he owns us, who do we serve? Him. But it's a joy to serve him. It's not sorrow. It's great joy to serve the king of kings. And then by his power, we can actually serve others. So how do we serve others? Paul says, as a nursing mother. He now uses the metaphor of a mother. A newborn infant... um, appears to be helpless, but they do make their needs known, yes? (laughs) Loudly and sometimes stinkily, or however you say that, right? But they are vulnerable, they're helpless, they're thirsty, they need tender, loving care in abundance. And one of the ways moms care for their children is by feeding them nourishing food so they can grow. Here's what's interesting. When baby's breastfeeding, what mom eats now, baby eats later. Yeah? I mean, that's pretty obvious. Spiritual shepherds need to be careful what they eat. Because whatever spiritual shepherd eats, that's what they're going to feed to their people, to the flock. And we're accountable before the chief shepherd what we feed on and what we share. And I tremble at my accountability before the Lord for that because I am accountable to bring to you the whole counsel of God. What you do with it, you're accountable for, but I'm accountable to bring it to you straight up, no chaser, with love, but truth, because that's what the Holy Spirit commands us to do. God's spiritual infants need what? The pure milk of God's word. 1 Peter 2.2 says, newborn babies, spiritual babies, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow to salvation. I, I, I am so persuaded over and over again, no matter what else you do, no matter what else you do, Get people into Bible study. 
They can come from Jehovah Witnesses background, Mormon background, Catholic background, whatever they come from, whatever it is it is. Get them into God's Word. If they study God's Word long enough, the Holy Spirit will bring truth to them and convict them, and they'll be converted. But they have to get into God's Word. And that's the great encouragement because that's the milk that where the Lord will reveal himself to them. God's word is spiritual superfood. You want to grow? Immerse yourself in God's word. Feast in God's word. He says, indulge yourself in the Lord. That means indulge yourself in his word. He uses this word tender care. He's really talking about the word cherish. There's the association 50 years ago did a song, Cherish. Those of you that remember, any of you that old? Yeah, I know you're that old, but your memories aren't that good. Anyway, it's a great tune. Right? It's a great song. Cherish is the word. I'm not going to sing it. So cherish means to warm with body heat. It means you're holding a baby close to you physically and warming them with body heat. It really has to do with birds who cover their young what with their wings and hold them close to their bodies to warm and protect them. He's talking about... Protecting the helpless, sheltering the vulnerable. And Jesus does that. He, Jesus said in Matthew 23, 27, the night before he died, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. That's the heart of the Lord toward people. He loves people. He wants to cherish them. And we are to do that for new believers. By the way, love means time. And for moms, that means 24-7. It means being available. It means being flexible in order to meet the needs of her children. A mom's life is often driven by interruptions. Amen? A mom's life is often inconvenient. Amen? But it's always worthwhile. Because if you have children... You're dealing with eternal issues. You're dealing with generationally eternal issues. That's why it's so crucial. And we're called to love new believers in the same way that moms love her children. Paul says, this is how we came to you. Like a, a nursing mother, we came to you with tenderness. We came to you nurturing you. We came to you feeding you the word of God with a, a heart to love and care for you. He says, her own children. You know, there's a bond between moms and children, their own children, that I don't understand. I get dad, but mom and child, it's almost inexpressible. It, it, is, a, it is a divine mystery. Paul says, when we were with you, we weren't doing a job. We loved you. He said, we had a fond affection for you. It means to yearn for, to long for. It means we desire to see you safe and secure and succeeding and thriving spiritually. Each child is important to mom. Her heart, yes? Each child is important to Jesus, each spiritual child. And we are to love them with that same love that Jesus loved them and a mom loves her children. Paul knew the people at Thessalonica as individuals. And he loved them like they were his own children. You know, we say here at Manna, a ministry is what? Doing life together. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We all have good, bad, and ugly. Amen? Guess what? When we do life together, we do the good, the bad, and the ugly together because Jesus is more 
than the good, the bad, and the ugly. He is sufficient for every one of our needs. Paul said, we not only ministered to you, we cared about you. We would give our own lives, or use this term, we're well pleased to impart our own lives, right? Jesus said what? I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd does what? Lays down his life for the sheep. And we're called to do the same thing. We're called to serve where God has called us to serve. And I, and I hear some of you saying, well, Jesus laid his life physically down. Unless I'm called to be a martyr, I'm not called to lay down my life. Let me give you an equation. Time is life. Got that? So when you're laying down your life for someone, you're laying down your time for them. We have a two-and-a-half-year-old grandson. All he knows is time means love. You don't have time, you don't love me. You give me time, you love me. Guess what? We never outgrow that. Ever. As adults in this room, if we have family and friends, whoever it is, time means love. You will always put time into what you value. Say yes. And you will not put time into what you don't value. Paul says, we put time into you. We laid down our life one day at a time because we loved you. And as Christians, you are called to do the same thing. Verse 9. For you recall, brethren, our labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Here's the principle. Our primary purpose on earth, is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Our primary purpose on earth is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Don't trade your days for anything less. I was going to say, don't waste your life on anything less. I still stand by that. So Paul now, he's talked about the metaphor of a mother. Now he uses the metaphor of a worker. He said, we worked hard when we were with you. Toil, hard labor, fatigue, exhaustion. By the way, one of the things our culture, I think, is missing is a strong work ethic. If you're a Christian, no one should legitimately be able to call you lazy. That's an oxymoron. If you're a Christian, nobody should be able to legitimately call you lazy. Your boss is Jesus Christ. Do your work heartily as for the Lord, not for man, knowing what? From the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Jesus Christ whom you serve. We are called to holy sweat. And we live in a culture that's addicted to what? Amusement and time off and leisure and comfort and entertainment and take it easy. You can die doing that stuff, Right? I mean, if you never walk the stairs in, you always tell the elevator, what's going to happen to your cardio? Really? I know, I'm now I'm meddling, right? <laughs> I, I was going to talk to the golfers who actually walk the course instead of the cart. Man, I hats off to you. Anyway, now I'm really meddling because I don't even golf. <laughs> but you know, I'm going to meddle. I'm going to meddle. That's just what it is. The Holy Spirit's going to meddle. I'm just a mouse. So we are to sweat. Holy sweat in this gospel endeavor because it's the greatest mission in the world. It's also the greatest adventure in the world. It's eternal. See, the size of the harvest is up to God. 
But we're called to work hard to prepare the soil, plant the seeds, water, weed, fertilize, protect the plants, and finally get the harvest. You know, somebody once said, pray for a good harvest, but keep on hoeing. Yes, Ron? Yeah, you have to sweat if you want a good crop. That's the nature of the beast. Now, in ancient Rome, just by the way, a day laborer would work about 70 hours a week. That's 10 hours a day, seven days a week, or 12, 13 hours a day, six days a week. I mean, you can do the math here and figure out these people worked and worked hard. Paul was a tent maker during the day for many of his years, and he taught publicly and privately a night beyond that. So the, these false teachers, said they'd come into Thessalonica, and they said, by the way, Paul's, Paul's doing it for the money. And Paul says, I'm not doing it for the money. I never took a dime from you. I worked to support myself, and I taught you after work for free, right? He didn't want anyone to charge you. He was peddling the gospel for money. And he put up with a lot of hardship. But he said, our primary mission was, quote, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. That was the primary mission, the gospel. And he never allowed himself to become distracted. You and I are called to what? Make disciples of the nations. That's simple. Here's what Satan will do. If he can't stop you from doing the right thing, he'll distract you into doing other things. Good things. Moral things. Nice things. Feed the hungry, house them, blah, blah, blah. But don't, don't, don't talk about that eternal stuff. Don't talk about sin. Don't talk about salvation. So all those people you helped in 25 years, they die. Then what? How much have you helped? I'm not saying you shouldn't feed the hungry, shouldn't clothe, shouldn't put housing on. I'm not saying any of that. I'm saying the purpose of all that is eternal. It's salvation. It's souls. If you're going to help people, help them for all eternity by introducing them to the Savior. Amen? Nothing is sadder than seeing someone near the end of the life, end of their life, and them realizing that they've wasted most of their life on trivialities. On stuff that really is not going to count in eternity. Because Satan is the master of distraction. He will distract you. You can waste three hours online and not even know it's gone. Clicking from here, clicking to there, clicking to there. That's a metaphor of life. You go from this path to that path, that website to that website. Three hours are burned up and you get to go, what, what, what do I remember out of the three hours? Well, I guess I was entertained for three hours. What do I have to show for it? Lack of sleep. That's about it. Think eternity. Live for eternity. A fruitful Christian, lastly, imitates the character and conduct of Christ. Verse 10. You are witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we behave toward you believers, just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Here's the principle. God's standard for our life is the character of Christ. God's standard for our life is the character of Christ. Now, Paul's reminding them how he behaved toward them when he was there. He said, we, 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 we were like fathers to you. So now he's in the father metaphor, mother metaphor, worker metaphor, 
Now he's talking about, we behave to you like a, a godly father would. We were devout. We passionately pursued God. We were upright. We did the right thing for the right reason. We were blameless. It doesn't mean sinless, but we behaved in such a way that no one could bring a charge against us of wrong behavior. We treated you as God treated you. In other words, our example was a godly example. By the way, there is no more powerful message than you can leave than the power of a godly example. What comes out of your mouth is not as strong as how you live your life. And when those two line up, it is incalculably powerful, eternally powerful. Paul says, when we were with you, we treated you like a father and we were doing three things. We were exhorting you. That means to solemnly charge you, to encourage you, to adjure you, to urge you. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm exhorting you. I'm in your face because I love you. I'm encouraging you on the authority of the word of God to live a certain way. That's what Paul's doing, like a father with his children, right? Number two, he said, we were encouraging you. We were encouraging you to persevere. We were giving you advice. We were giving you a counsel. We were imputing courage to you, and we were imploring you. We were beseeching. We were strongly urging. We were pleading for you to do this. This is how Paul was treating the uh, Thessalonian believers, like a father with his own children. By the way, fathers are objects in our culture of buffoonery. If you watch television, you will never see godly, strong men. You'll always see buffoons, fools, because the world is terrified of a godly father. And the writers of those TV scripts all have problems with their own fathers. That's why they write this garbage. I'm just being up front with you, right? How are fathers supposed to behave? Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Psalm 103, 13. Just as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he is mindful that we are dust. So what was Paul exhorting and encouraging and imploring and pleading and beseeching them to do? to walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. See, God is our Father. You're His children if you know His Son as your Savior. And He says, I want you to walk in a manner worthy of my name. Now, those of you who have children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, family, friends, etc., you always want your children or grandchildren to behave in such a way that would make you proud. Is that logical? Of course. You want them to behave in a way that you go, oh, yes, Lord, that is so cool. They behaved in a godly fashion, and they brought glory to your family. They brought honor because they did the right thing for the right reason at the right time. You bear the name Christian. I bear the name Christian. We are commanded and called and invited and exhorted to behave in a way to bring honor to our Father. This is why hypocritical Christians are so damaging. Because we say, well, we shouldn't do X and Y and Z. God's Word says do this, but I don't do it. Who gets blamed for all that? God. Sinful Christians bring shame to His name. Obedient Christians... Bring glory to his name. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy. You've been called by God and infused by the Holy Spirit 
to live. And what's the standard you're to live up to? Jesus Christ. If you want to know how you're supposed to live, it's all written down in the Gospels, right? All four of them, in the book of Acts as well. We know his character. We know his conduct. Romans 8, 29 says his goal is to make you more like Jesus. Everything Jesus Christ does in your life, everything the Holy Spirit does in your life, all the circumstances that happen to you are shaping you into the character of Jesus. And that can be a painful process. But he does it because he loves us. Just like you told your children when you paddled them. I only do this because I love you. And they believed you. Wrong, right? Just like when God says, I'm shaping you like Jesus, and I do this because I love you. And we go, yeah, love me less. Right? I mean, this hurts. But eternally, we will be grateful beyond measure, and we will praise his name. So God expects us, you and I, to cooperate with him in making us like Jesus, and he has entrusted us with a ministry of the gospel, that treasure that can change lives for eternal. He wants you to have a faithful and fruitful ministry, and he's given you five things here in order to accomplish that. Let's review them. Number one, God expects and enables his people to be faithful and fruitful in their ministries. How do you do that? Number one, ministry requires courage. You're going to need courage. But God has given us boldness and power through the Holy Spirit. You've got it. Number two, God requires us to handle his gospel treasure with diligence and accuracy. You have the word of God right here. Make the time to study. Cry out to the Holy Spirit to open your eyes and show you what he wants you to know so that you can obey it. Number three, with, with tenderness, we're, supposed to, we're raising spiritual infants to maturity and it requires large doses of time and tender loving care. I am utterly amazed that Jesus spent three years with his disciples pretty much 24 by 7. Your children spent 18 years with you. What did they learn? Did I just say that? Sorry, but I'm going to say it. You cannot impact somebody if you don't spend time with them. If you spend time with them, you will impact them. Just make sure you're impacting them the right way. Number four. Our primary purpose on earth is to make disciples. I'm going to say this. Not all of you have grandchildren or nieces or nephews or whatever, but when you spend time with your loved ones, you're making disciples. Question is, are you making disciples of Jesus or making disciples of you? See, I'm very convicted about this. I have 10 hours on Friday with our two grandsons. And I cry out every single week, Lord, may Friday count. Because I don't know how many more I have. They might move. I don't know. Make them count. You've got so much time. And many of you here are models to me. We've got some unbelievable grandparents and aunts and uncles and friends and disciple makers here. I'm telling you, I, I love you all. You're a model for me. Many of you have brought conviction to my heart. And lastly... Our standard of our life is the character of Christ. If you want to know how I should be behaving at any point in time with the gospel, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Okay. Thank you for staying with us. I love you. And now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. 
Here at MANA, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.